picture yourself, I want to say in a boat on a river, but uh, picture yourself on an airplane. And uh, I know most of you are familiar enough with flying that you can picture the flight attendant standing in front of you giving a little pre-flight speech. And she shows you how to put on the safety belt, which is kind of funny because everybody knows how to use one of those. And then she shows you something else. What's she show you? The, the oxygen mask. And at this point, most of us are kind of glazed over unless it's your first flight and you're reading a novel or looking at the magazine or that kind of thing. But, uh, but she goes through the explanation faithfully, steadfastly, every time. And uh, how many of you have ever been on a flight where you use the oxygen mask? Anybody? Really? Oh, well, there were, there were zero in the first service, which is kind of what I expected, and I'm, I'm interested in hearing that story, but I expected <laughs> zero or very few here. It would have kind of ruined my illustration if a bunch of you had used them, but uh, um, most of the time, you, a lot of you have taken a lot of flights and never had to use that oxygen mask, and yet, aren't you glad it's there? Um, when Every once in a while, there's, there's a situation where you need one, and it's really good to have it. And the point of that is this, oftentimes, even disciples, even Christians who've been walking with the Lord for decades, we fall into the temptation of treating prayer as the oxygen mask. You know, God rescue me, God help me, God make my wife okay. You know, we cry out to God in times of distress, or in times of great crisis, and yet, and this thought isn't original with me, prayer's not the oxygen mask, it's the oxygen. Uh, Martin Luther said it this way, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And yet, it ought to be a source of great joy. It ought to be a source of intimacy with our Heavenly Father. It ought to be a source of strength and empowerment. And yet, for many of us, it's just a, a hassle. It, we, we, instead of receiving the joy in it, we treat it like this religious duty, this obligation we must perform in order to check the box and get our Jesus points for the week. But that's not the way Jesus would have encouraged us to, uh, to, to deal with it. You know, we got these questions, we got these problems. How should I pray? I remember being in a Bible study years ago where a guy said, I don't even know who to pray to. I hear you guys praying to Jesus, but uh, I see Jesus praying to the Father, and shouldn't I ask the Holy Spirit sometimes for stuff? Who am I even supposed to pray to? And uh, how should I pray? Am I doing it right? Why is it so hard if it's supposed to be such a, 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 a steady part of the Christian life? Is God listening? And if he's listening, why won't he answer? Um, or why won't he answer the way I want him to? So I don't have all the answers to all these. You know, sometimes we'll take a lifetime of pondering and meditation to work those out. But we're going to go to Jesus today and see uh, what he taught about prayer. In fact, we're, look, we're looking at 13 verses from Luke chapter 11. And it's really three parts today. We're going to see a version, a different version than, we most, than most of us have memorized of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and really a better name for that would be the disciples' prayer. This isn't so much the prayer Jesus prayed. It's the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. And that would include you and me, wouldn't it? Then he gives a very brief parable about prayer. And then, like last week, we get a commentary from Jesus about the parable he just taught. So that makes it a little easier to understand. And I consider this, last week we talked about God sightings, where we see God moving and, and, uh, uh, in the lives, in our lives. And, and this is one for me. This week's parable is about prayer. Next week's parable is about prayer. And this Thursday is the National Day of Prayer. And so, you know, it's, it's nice to learn more about the Bible, but it's not really, it doesn't really do us much good if it just adds to our intellectual storehouse. Um, and so these words are to do. 
not to learn. Uh, and so we get a chance to practice. So I hope you'll go home and practice. I hope you'll spend the rest of your lives practicing these principles. But uh, we have a very cool kind of you know, once a year opportunity to participate in the National Day of Prayer this Thursday, and so I encourage you to do it. In fact, I heard that Rick and Susie were, were proclaiming a fast, and, and feel free to join in that. There are a variety of ways to participate in that Thursday. Um, and then if you're able to come uh, uh, be part of the prayer group Thursday night, uh, we don't have guitar lessons this Thursday, so the building's open. So, so come on out. Bring your prayer request or lift up the needs of the, the nation and the community and this church. Uh, so I think that's pretty cool. I tried to recite it from memory, uh, but I, I stumbled about two-thirds of the way through, so I won't do it. But look up Second Chronicles 7.14. It's the one that starts it with, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and, uh, and turn from their wicked ways and call out to me, then I'm going to answer their prayer. I'll heal their land. Uh, it's a pretty cool promise, and it's a, I think it's, it's an exhortation for us to participate in this thing. So let's go back to Luke 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. The implication here is that there's a recited prayer, a ritualistic prayer that they recited over and over again. And some people use the Lord's Prayer that way, and I don't really think that's a problem, as long as you pay attention to the words you're saying. But I think it's, it's, it's plain that Jesus was teaching us some principles here rather than say it exactly like this. Whenever you find that you're in need of help, who should you ask? This disciple asked Jesus for help, which seems like a very good thing to do. Um, but sometimes um, you and I find we need help with a problem, and sometimes we don't really go to an expert, but we go maybe to a willing friend who just you know, seems to have opinions about it, but maybe not expertise. Uh, I remember a story from my childhood. When I got to seventh grade, I was surprised that when I took uh, physical education, that it was more than just a PE class. Uh, there was also a sex education class mixed in. Now, the PE class was, of course, taught by the professor, I mean, the teacher, a coach with a whistle. The uh, sex ed part was taught by a loudmouth seventh grader in the locker room. You know, just a guy like me, uh, another pimply-faced kid who thought he knew more than he really did and liked to talk. Uh, and, uh, and, and my point is, this is most definitely the blind leading the blind, wouldn't you say? Uh, kids who are, you know, with over-imagination or, or overdeveloped imaginations and curiosity talking about things they don't really know anything about. And yet oftentimes we do the same thing. We really need help with something. Uh, why not go to the expert? Let's ask. Uh, now, we have several options. We could, ask, uh, we could ask Jesus. We could ask an expert. You could ask a preacher. Um, in our society today, we often ask Hollywood filmmakers to teach us about theology. And so uh, I'm going to show a clip. And this one calls for a little introduction. Um, um, some of you have seen this movie. Uh, Jim Carrey plays the part of Bruce Nolan, who's a, um, a reporter. And he's grumbling, complaining about his life. God's not been doing a good enough job from his perspective. And so God, uh, played in this movie by Morgan Freeman, decides to sort of take him up on the challenge. And so God decides to go on a little vacation, take a break and leave Bruce with all of his powers and his responsibilities. Just, I'm going to take some time off, you handle it, do, do such a good, you know, if you think you could do such a good job is kind of the idea. And so in the clip we're going to see Bruce is still learning to adjust to all the prayers. Uh, it takes him a little while to figure out how to handle that. So uh, let's watch. So that's what this is all about. Well, yeah. Grace, we got anchor. Jack's throwing me a party Friday night at the Vanderbilt Estate to celebrate. What's the matter? No. 
Wow, it's kind of loud in here, isn't it? No, it's not loud. Jeez! Keep it down to a dull roar? Thank you! Is that supposed to be funny? Because that is not funny. What are you saying? What is wrong with you? Stop yelling! Grab me the winning numbers in this weekend's party. Uh, excuse me, I think I'll take a little trip to the, uh... The wine is going right through me. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Please give me the strength. What is going on here? Oh, what is this? Give me a break! Really something, isn't it? Is this heaven? No, this is Mount Everest. You should flip on the Discovery Channel from time to time. But I guess you can't now, being dead and all. I'm dead? Nah, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> That's not funny, man. That is not funny. <laughs> and what about the voices in my head? Is that part of the hilarity? No, those are prayers. And you keep ignoring them, they're going to build up on you like that. But it's just noise. I can't understand them. You're not listening, son. Let's see. You've had my pals for a little over a week now. How many people have you helped? No, I, I took care of a few things. I righted a few wrongs in my own life first, okay? I was gonna help the others. I think I could help the world. The world? Mm-hmm. That wasn't the world. That was just Buffalo between 57th Street and Commonwealth. Oh. I didn't want to start you off with more than you can handle. Well, you took the job, Bruce, so I suggest you get to it. Seeing him smile would make me so happy. Prayers, prayers, okay, prayers. Uh... This creepy thing has to end for every organization and management. That's what I need. I need a system, something concrete. Concentrate. Files. Let all prayers be organized into files. Well, that takes care of the voices. Not exactly a space saver, though. Grace might notice. I know. Prayer post-its! Gracias, señor. Adiós. Adiós. 
That's fresh mountain-grown coffee from the hills of Colombia. Of whiners. That's my favorite part. That's funny, but I don't really think all that accurate. So let's ask Jesus. What, what, let's, let's let him teach us about prayer. And he is the expert. Luke 5.16 says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In fact, he prayed at, routinely. The Bible records that often. Uh, Luke especially records that he went off by himself to pray. And before every major event of his ministry, he went off alone and prayed. Prayed all night before he chose his disciples. Um, and so when the disciple goes to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. They're asking the right guy. Uh, there's another version of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. In fact, as we read this one, I find it's kind of difficult to read it the way it's written because I find myself remembering the Matthew one that's more commonly memorized. Um, the fact that there are two versions tells me something. Um, I, I think it's likely that Jesus probably taught this more than once, but that he's more concerned about the principles than the precision of reciting the words exactly right. So let's take a look. Verse 2. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. So the first part of this prayer is all about God, and that's the part that I think uh, we need to start with and the part we sometimes neglect. We, you know, we go to God because we need something, and we need it, we need it now. But uh, I think we, we jump past the, the front end, which is really the most important part. First of all, prayer is addressed to your Father, and that's the key to understanding the rest, that, that we're, we're asking a Father who loves us and who knows more than we know and who has our best interest at heart. Sometimes that picture of God as your Father is a barrier, though, because uh, we tend to project our own dads on, on this Father. And... And so the flaws that your earthly, earthly father might have, you might suppose that God's the same kind of guy. But no, that's not true. God has all of your dad's good qualities and none of, of the bad qualities. Uh, he knows it all. He loves, he loves you. He cares for you. And there's nothing, there's nothing to taint that pure, pure love of God. The prayer starts off about God's glory more than about your needs. His honored name, his kingdom come. In fact, the first part about hallowed be your name um, kind of uh, it seems to have derived or Jesus seems to have taken this from a prayer he would have heard many times in synagogue when he was younger. The Kaddish is a common way to end a Jewish synagogue service, and it goes like this. Exalted and hallowed be his name in the world, which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole of Israel speedily and soon. And then the other thing we want when we proclaim God's glory is for his kingdom to come. Now, how's that going to look? 
Uh, yesterday I was over in Orlando taking a class, um, and my Asbury professor, his name's Brian Russell, he said this. He, was, he happened to make a comment about uh, the Lord's Prayer and how we should use that in a Christian community, which is pretty surprising because the class he's teaching us is on the Old Testament, you know, where the Lord's Prayer is not found. So this is just sort of an extra... Um, extra little bit, but I thought it was right on time since I was uh, doing a message on the Lord's Prayer. And he said, what we should ask ourselves is this, what kind of person do I need to be in order to pray this prayer? Are you really willing to say your kingdom come? And, and, and where, where is it that I have the power to make God's kingdom come? Do I have the power to enthrone God over all the world or over our nation or over our city or even over our church? I, have the, I can pray for that, but there's only one place where I really have the control over God's kingdom truly reigning, and that's in me. And, and that's how, if, if we really want God's kingdom to come, then I think we need to start with ourselves and make sure he's on the throne in our own lives. For people from our era, I think it's really hard to picture anybody on any throne in a way that we're going to respond to. You know, it's been a few hundred years since people around here have, have really responded to a throne. Um, Maybe a, a word picture or a symbol that would ring truer with you is a blank check. Have you written God that blank check? Um, if conviction comes, are you still free to say, well, I'm just not ready for that yet? Um, or have you given over control of your life to God, mastery of your life to God, where if he brings conviction, we'll say, well, God, whatever, your kingdom come. You're the king. Because the alternative to him being the king is that I'm the king. And what I, found, what I learned the hard way is I'm kind of a petty tyrant uh, and, and prone to poor decision-making. And uh, I don't think I'm alone in that. So uh, yeah, have you written that blank check? Do you, have you committed that his kingdom will come in your life? Let's go back to an early teaching of Jesus and see kind of just one aspect of what that kingdom would look like. In Luke 6, uh, 35, Jesus said, Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Let's go back to the Lord's Prayer and see what it says about us. So we're going to pray about the Father's glory, first of all, and then we're going to pray about our needs three, three ways. Daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Lead us not into temptation. Daily bread really just means our basic needs. And notice the key word there is the adjective daily. Uh, God doesn't invite us to stockpile our needs. Remember the guy with the barns, the parable from a few weeks ago? Um, God's looking for us, just like with the Israelites and the manna. He's looking for us to be dependent on him daily. You know, it's not appropriate for me to pray, God, give me all the spiritual insight I need for the next year, and I'll come back to you next year and ask for more. Uh, that, seems, you know, that seems like foolishness, and yet you know, what's more common is, you know, thanks for helping me out of that job. Thanks for helping me out of that jam. And I'll, I'll ring you up again when I'm in another one, right? Uh, but uh, God's looking for, Jesus is teaching us that uh, we are dependent on him daily for insight, for guidance, for our daily needs. And what about forgiveness? Notice the connection. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. That's kind of a scary thing because we don't forgive everyone who sins against us. And so if we're tying the two together, um, we're in... If we're expecting for his forgiveness, don't we want better forgiveness from him that we're willing to give out to others? I mean, we sure hope so, and, and, and he does forgive properly. But if we're just totally unwilling to forgive, 
I, I suspect that what, what we've got is just a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. If you are willing and able to accept forgiveness from God, but unwilling to extend that forgiveness to other people, ask yourself why. I can think of a couple possibilities. Do you think maybe that you deserve to be forgiven, but this other guy doesn't deserve to be forgiven? Or maybe you earn forgiveness from God with your righteous behavior, but you know, they're, not, they're not worthy like you? Um, obviously, that's a, just sort of a misapprehension of the gospel. And so people who understand the forgiveness that God gave to us and our need for that forgiveness... The, the natural consequence of that is that we need to be ready to extend it, uh, to extend it to, to others. And uh, uh, you need to find somebody to forgive. If, if you're looking for somebody to forgive you, practice on, that's easy. Just look in your own family. You don't have to go outside the house. You can practice forgiveness often, right? Um, this concept's all over the Bible. Uh, Paul emphasized it in his letters. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you, Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And the last thing Jesus teaches us to ask for is lead us not into temptation. According to Paul, this prayer has already been answered, and that's good news. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So how should we pray? We should pray to the Father. Recognize that he's your Father. Recognize that he loves you. We should pray about the Father's glory. Remember, Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but yours. And we should pray about our needs. And you can trust him to answer this prayer. Now, after the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus gives is a short parable to demonstrate, <clears throat> to illustrate these principles. Let's take a look. Verse 5. <clears throat> then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, Lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Got a lot of friends in this, so let's make sure we understand what's happening. You're the guy in the parable who doesn't have any food in the house. And one of your friends knocks on the door asking to be let in at midnight, and you're supposed to let him in and give him something to eat. But since you don't have anything to eat, you're in a dilemma. And so you're going to another friend who's already in bed but has food and asking for help. Now remember... The couple things about um, the ancient Near East will help you understand this one a little better. Midnight seems like kind of a bizarre time for someone to arrive just routinely. But remember, they did all the transportation by walking, and uh, um, it's quite hot there. And so if you were going to walk all around, say, Brevard County, Florida, um, it would make sense to wait until the, the sun goes down. And so they quite often walked in the evening and sometimes would arrive late. And also remember... Hospitality is not really prized in, in 21st century America. Uh, not talking to strangers is more of a value that's celebrated here. But, but um, in the ancient Near East, not just in Israel, but all around, um, it would have been a shame to the family, a shame on the community to turn away a traveler and not offer him any food or to even welcome someone in your house and not offer him something to eat. So um, this guy's in a real dilemma. He, he needs to show hospitality. That's a high value in his culture, but he just doesn't have the means, so now he's going to ask for help. Let's finish the parable. Verse 7. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door's already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Something else you should know about the area is back then, most of the homes were one-room homes. And so this one room would have been a multi-purpose room, 
Um, at night, they would roll out a sleeping roll or a pallet, and the whole family would sleep there together. And then in the morning, they'd roll it all up, and now it's your living room or your kitchen or whatever, or your dining room. And so, like, if you're picturing your house where the kids are snugly in bed, and you can answer the door or take care of business or do whatever you want to without bothering them, this isn't how they lived back then. And so the guy in bed saying, look, I can't, I can't turn over the whole house just to let you in and give you some bread. And if you've got young kids, you realize uh, it's easy for you to understand, I think, putting the kids down for bedtime a second time is not really a joy, not, not a joy you want to endure, right? And so the guy says, no, leave me alone. <laughs> um, but he does respond. Mom, <laughs> I tell you, though he will not give up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So what he's saying is the guy didn't really want to get up and give him anything, but he, you know, the only way to stop the noise is to give him what he needs. Now, this is a bit of a hard-to-understand parable because if I'm the guy, if you and I are the guy who's knocking on the door, is God the guy that's exasperated and frustrated, doesn't really want, to, really want to answer our prayers, but just wants to make you stop whining or knocking on the door, so he'll, he'll do it. It almost sounds like the movie prayer, right? Um, does prayer work like that? Uh, it's easy to think that because we all know God's busy with important stuff, more important than our stuff, right? He's got famines and he's got wars and the, lo the lines are clogged up by all the other whiners. Is it, like, is it like entering a radio contest where you just got to keep calling and keep calling, hoping you're going to be the lucky winner that gets your prayer answered today? I don't think that's what it teaches at all. This is not a parable of comparison. Jesus is not saying, God, your heavenly Father who loves you, is like the guy who doesn't want to get out of bed, but he'll do it anyway just to shut you up. This is a parable of contrast. And what Jesus is saying is that even that guy will give you what you want just to stop the knocking. If he's going to give you what you want because you boldly ask, how much more will your father who loves you and wants to give you good things respond to that and answer your prayers? And so this is, Jesus is saying, even that guy's going to help you. God wants to help you. God wants to give you the good things. And like last week, we have a commentary from Jesus about the parable. He gives us a couple more word pictures. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. This is a passage that's taught a lot in churches and by radio preachers and TV preachers. And uh, what, what's going to be given to you? What will you find? Whatever you ask for? I don't think the Bible teaches that. And how do we know that? Because who's God in this parable? He's our Father. Right? Or, or when Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray to our Father. We've got lots of parents in the room. Would it be good parenting for you to say yes to everything your kids have asked for? Um, why not? They know what they want. They, they must want it or they wouldn't ask you for it. Why wouldn't you say yes? Don't you love them? Don't you want to give them good things? It's because you know that saying yes to everything they, they want wouldn't be helpful to them, right? Because they're kids and you're not and you know more than they do. And you know sometimes the things they want would ultimately hurt them. And, and for you to say yes would be harmful rather than helpful. Well, we're, in the, we're the kids in this story, and God's the Father. And he knows more than I do, and he knows more than we all do. And if he said yes to me every time I asked him for something, that ultimately wouldn't be for my benefit. That wouldn't be the best thing for me. But we can count on this. He knows more than us, and he loves us, and he wants good things for us. 
And so we can't count on this. This parable doesn't mean we can count on him to say yes to everything we ask for. We can count on him to answer our prayers, and we can count on him to look out for our needs and look out for our interests. Take better care of us than we can take care of, our, of ourselves, actually. You can count on this from your father. A better translation of this passage would be keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. The first principle, and I'm going to sum up three principles here pretty quickly. The first principle is persistence. Jesus says we can count on God to hear our prayers, and that should embolden us. Let's take a look at Hebrews and see what that says. Hebrews 10:19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. So the second principle about prayer we can learn from his teaching is confidence. We should have persistence. We should have confidence. And then let's finish the passage. Verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This part's kind of silly, but the, the fish, snake, uh, egg, scorpion thing, it reminds me of an old Saturday Night Live skit. Can anybody remember when Bill Murray used to be on there? And he played this part, there, there was this skit where he was like this drunken Santa. And a, a girl would sit on his lap and say, you know, I'd like a doll, I'd like something. And he'd just kind of slur in his kind of silly way. He'd say, he's all dressed up like Santa. And he'd say, well, I'm not going to give you that, but I'll tell you what, here's what I will give you. Anybody remember? Santa's trap door. And he'd pull his leg out, and she'd go crash into the floor, and he'd kind of laugh at her. And uh, I remember thinking, what a cruel skit. And, uh, of course, that was 20 years ago. I laughed at it a lot back then. But um, that's what this reminds me of. Your son asks for a fish, and you give him a snake. He asks for an egg, and you give him a, a scorpion. You know, what an awful thing. And, of course, he's saying, you're not going to do that. Why would you? You know, God in heaven's going to do way better. And then this part seems kind of harsh. If you then, though you are evil know how to give good, give good gifts to your children. Though you're evil, a little harsher than maybe we want to read, I think what Jesus is saying there is we're tainted by a sin nature. You know, I've, I've got two kids. I've tried to be a good father to them and to give them the right things and to teach them the right way. But my love for my children is tainted by my own selfishness and pride and sometimes anger. And yet God's love for us is not tainted by anything. His love is pure. There's none of that. There's none of that stuff that your dad brings to the table involved in God's love for you. Your heavenly father knows what's best for you and he wants what's best for you. And look at what he gives, the very end of the passage. How much more will your father in heaven give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So the third principle is the principle of assistance. John said this, um, excuse me, Jesus said this in John 15, 26, when the counselor comes whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. So we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to help us make good decisions, to convict us when we step off. I had a friend uh, several years ago, he was teaching a men's Bible study. His name was Tom Locknick. And uh, he used this passage you know, um, to tell us, to teach us, there are no excuses. Tom had a little bit of a biting edge <laughs> to his instruction. A, a couple of you know him, you know what I'm talking about. And a uh, guy would... Uh, God would stumble into some kind of error or make a mistake, and Tom would say in his very direct way, did you pray about this? Did you listen? Did the Holy Spirit lead you into this sin? And his point was that we can count on the Holy Spirit to answer our prayers. He will direct us. If we ask him, he will give us direction. If we listen, 
He's not going to direct us wrong. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we thank you for this teaching. Jesus, thank you for the, uh, the good news. Um, we, we've embraced the good news of salvation. Uh, Lord, help us to embrace the good news that the Holy, Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit's guidance is available. Lord, help us to be people of prayer who consistently ask for your guidance. And Lord, help us to be people who say, yes, Lord, and then ask where you would lead us. Lord, we know better than to ask for your opinion so we can think it over. Lord, we ask for your direction so we can obey. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.